Don of War is back to redefine real-time strategy gaming and offer the most fun you can have with Warhammer 40,000. Building on 12 years of critically acclaimed gameplay, Don of War 3 combines the epic scale of the first Don of War with the customization and elite heroes of Don of War 2. The result is a best-in-class real-time strategy game that offers the rich strategic experience, stunning visuals, and catastrophic surprises that players have come to expect. Don of War is out for PC today, April 27th, so you can find it on Steam. And I also want to tell you about Dell. Bring your best game at every level. From powerful Dell gaming PCs with Intel Core processors to the ultimate Alienware VR-ready experience. Don't just play. Game. Visit dell.com slash gaming. That's dell.com slash gaming. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and on the other line, like Call of Duty with D-Day, I just can't quit him. It's Jason Concepcion. Hey, Jason. Storm in the beach. Yet again. Yet again. With higher resolution this time. Finally, it's what we've all been waiting for. So later in this episode, we're going to talk to Chris Person from Kotaku, who does their excellent Highlight Reel series. Going to ask him about what makes a good gaming highlight. And in just a couple minutes, we're going to talk to Ian Dallas, the designer of What Remains of Edith Finch. I've been playing Ian Dallas games all week. I played The Unfinished Swan, his 2012 PS3 game, and then his brand new PS4 game, What Remains of Edith Finch. We've both been playing. You have any quick thoughts before we bring him on? Yeah, I'm really enjoying Edith Finch. It's like the best version of, I don't want to say walking simulator, but it's the best (laughs) version of an exploration game of that type where you interact with environments and really interesting ways yes. that flesh out a story that's really eerie and fascinating. Great character study. Yeah, so to set this up, Ian's company is called Giant Sparrow. This game is the first one published by Annapurna Interactive, which is a division of Annapurna Pictures, the movie company that has produced Paul Thomas Anderson movies and David O. Russell movies, Bennett Miller, Catherine Bigelow. So that's the business industry angle. And as for the story, we won't get too spoilery here, but the brief premise, this is a game where you play as the last surviving member of a family that could be cursed, or at least it's famous for being cursed because the average life expectancy, if I did my tombstone math correctly, is about 32 years. And so you play in this big, dilapidated, architecturally unsound house where essentially all the memories that we might have in our heads are reflected in rooms of this house. When each person dies, their room is sealed away and left untouched. And you go back to this house and explore each one of their stories and take control of their stories as they meet their end. And the question is, is there an actual curse or is this all in this family's heads? So the story is well told and the mechanics are creative. There's a level where you are essentially playing in comic book panels. There's a level where you possess a creature. There's a level that kind of takes you through the progression of video games and changes perspectives and gets grander and grander and tasks you with controlling two things at the same time with both joysticks operating simultaneously. So it's really inventive. I really enjoyed it. So let's bring on its creator so we can grill him about it. And so now we are joined by Ian Dallas, the designer of The Unfinished Swan, and more recently, What Remains of Edith Finch. Hey, Ian. Hey. 
Hey, so if we could ask you a business question to begin and just get that out of the way before we get into the creative stuff. Obviously, sure. there's a lot of interest in Annapurna Interactive. This is the first game published by that division. And I'm curious about what that meant for you personally, as far as the development of Edith Finch goes, and then what it represents, if anything, that there is a, a company like this taking this sort of interest in video games. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was a, a very smooth transition because a lot of the people, uh, like more than half of the people at Annapurna Interactive uh, used to be at Sony Santa Monica. So there was a point, uh, you know, a year or two ago where, you know, people started kind of slowly leaving and then there was, you know, a bit of a, a rush. And, uh, and then suddenly we looked around and uh, most of the people that we'd been working with at Sony were gone. Uh, and then, you know, we, we kind of had this option of like, you know, staying and working with, with those folks or, uh, you know, moving with uh, the people that had already moved. And, you know, Annapurna just seemed like a, a really good fit. And uh, it has remained so. I think they have a, a very similar goal in terms of creating games that people have never seen before. So, you know, it's not something that, uh, that we are at odds with about, you know, we, we want to make the game stranger. And that's exactly what mm. they want as well. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, we had a really good experience with Sony Santa Monica as well. And, uh, you know, on our, on our first game, The Unfinished Swan, and then for the first half of Edith Finch, uh, and we've had a, a really great experience with Annapurna as well. And you see this as having any larger significance in terms of gaming and movie making and different types of storytelling coming together in a way? <laughs> uh, it's certainly good to have anyone else that is in the market to fund, you know, kind of large impractical dreams uh you know, <laughs> yeah. there are a lot of <laughs> turn that spigot on and let the money flow <laughs> yeah well i mean i think there are a lot of indie games that are made by uh, you know just grit you know where it's two or three folks uh you know in a basement somewhere or maybe it's a larger team that's remote working part-time and and there are you know games that can can work with you know that you can you make under those circumstances but you know for a game like what remains of Edith finch you know, I can't imagine doing it without, you know, a team that's larger than 10 and a team that is, you know, kind of working full time on it uh, and a lot of like fairly senior folks to get this thing over the finish line. And that's just a lot to ask people to do, you know, out of the goodness of their heart or, you know, some vague promise, you know, of royalty share, you know, several years from now. So, you know, I think Games like, you know, The Unfinished Swan or, or Journey or, or things, you know, at that or inside, you know, at that scale, they're just very hard to do without, you know, someone saying, okay, I believe in this and I'm willing to put up, you know, several million dollars to make it happen. And, you know, there aren't a lot of people you can go to with those kind of requests. And it's great to have, you know, a new option. And, you know, Annapurna is, uh, is very excited about making exactly the kind of games you know that we are also interested in and in terms of like the in terms of the, yeah the crossover between film and games it's not something that i've really been that aware of i think you know it's conceptually it seems like you know there would be some some overlap but uh yeah i mean i think the closest we ever got on this game was i think at one point we were doing uh, a focus test at annapurna's offices and Seth Rogen wandered through. But that was about as much of an overlap, you know, between the two worlds that I saw. Much like the debate over whether video games can be art, 
I had considered the the debate over whether video games are better with or without story to be pretty much dead and or <laughs> settled. But recently, Ian Bogust, who's an academic, wrote a piece in The Atlantic about story in games, whether games need mm-hmm. story, essentially. As a developer, how do you approach story within games? How do you approach uh, the ability to lead a player in certain directions, but also make that feel like uh, discovery? Like, what are the limitations? What are the things that, it, what are the obstacles that you have to overcome? And, and do you feel that story is important to video games? I think I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you may not. Uh, it may surprise you. I feel like story is helpful, but not necessary. And I think that there are things that you can do with story that are difficult to do in another way. Uh, certainly providing a context. You know, I think, frankly, like film or books do a better job of telling stories. Uh, like you can get into the headspace a little more specifically and there's less going on. Which is not to say that, you know, I don't think stories are important to games, but I think, you know, stories are important to games in the same way that music is important to movies. There are movies, you know, like a lot of um, uh, Tarkovsky movies are Mm. basically silent. Uh, The director of uh, Stalker and... Great movie. Yeah. um, uh, Ivan's Childhood and um, a lot of his movies are actually silent and they work, but they also have that kind of coldness that is appropriate to those movies but not a lot of other movies uh you know where something like there are a lot of other movies like guardians of the galaxy where the music is an integral part of communicating the feeling you know that they're going for there and i think for us story is in a similar place and your previous game the unfinished one had a very video gamey mechanic not a common one maybe a unique one you essentially Mm -hmm. fill in the world around you as you go by spraying paint and other substances to expose the geometry of the environment And you could run and you could jump and you had puzzles to solve. It was more interactive in a traditional video game sense, Mm -hmm. whereas Edith Finch falls into this lineage of, I don't want to use the the (laughs) term that ends in simulator because I I find that to be sort of dismissive, but a first-person exploration game where Mm -hmm. you are essentially just walking around an environment And you can press a button to interact with things, but you can't run, you can't jump. And so that often leads to a criticism that, oh, this doesn't feel like a video game. It's not interactive (laughs) enough. And you seem to confront that in a really interesting way in Edith Finch, where that might apply to the core parts of the game with Edith when you're just walking around the Finch Manor. But when you inhabit each of the characters' stories, you inject these elements of interactivity in really creative ways that I've never seen before. And and it lends it this much more active sense than just walking around and sort of having the story be sprayed at you like the the character (laughs) in The Unfinished Swan does to the environments around him. So how did you go about doing that, trying to use this framework of the first-person story-based adventure game, but also make it feel interactive in a way that other media can't really convey? Yeah, I mean, I think it came out of a desire to create a sense of intimacy and familiarity. You know, The Unfinished Swan takes place entirely in, you know, a fantastical world, mm-hmm. and 
you know, what remains of Edith Finch is, I mean, I the Unfinished Swan is more fantastical, and I would say Edith Finch is more surreal. And yeah. for me, you know, I think it's critical in a surreal world that you have uh, pretty clear ties to the real world, that it feels like it's a place that's just a little bit beyond, you know, the world that we're familiar with. And, you know, having a, a significant portion of the game take place in the real world uh, was a way to ground it. And also a way to, you know, in some ways, like, go farther in the imaginary world or the, like, the more fantastical places because we had a chance for players to, you know, kind of come back and calm down a bit and, you know, to vary the pacing. Where if we had had, you know, one story after another taking place in these, you know, kind of dreamscapes, uh, it would be hard, you know, it would feel a little bit one note and I think people would burn out uh, a bit faster where, you know, having time for reflection lets a lot of what happens in the stories sink in. So, you know, they can be these very intense moments, but you know, it doesn't overwhelm the game in a way that, you know, I think a little bit of cinnamon is great, but a bowl full of cinnamon, you know, is, is too much. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about your art style for this game? I was really struck by just the, the lived-in nature, the immersive nature of the craft of what you've made here and then and then contrast that with your more fantastic elements how did, how did you hit on that sweet spot of, of between realism and fantasy yeah i'm not entirely sure that we did i think that uh you know looking back <laughs> at the game now you know i feel like the house was pretty successful we figured out you know midway through the game like how to make these bedrooms come alive, you know, both from a design standpoint and then also, uh, you know, on the art side and, and the lighting. You know, the lighting was, was really important to making the house feel like a believable space. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of power and flexibility uh, and heartache that Unreal Engine uh, gives you. Things that don't quite work and then you spend, you know, so much time getting it just right. But, you know, that's, that's part of the magic of it that players don't get a sense of, wow, that was a really difficult thing to pull off. It just feels, you know, like this whole room kind of fits together. You know, so I think in terms of the, you know, overall art style, you know, we kind of realized midway through that, oh, we're really good at building rooms and this house. Let's do more of that. And one of the happy accidents we found is that the kind of natural development process we have of designing spaces, putting them in front of playtesters, realizing they're terrible, you know, and like doing several versions where we burn it all down and then like start over from scratch, but then keep little bits from each of the versions, uh, ended up giving the bedrooms uh, you know, like a sense of detail and the feeling that it had been worked over for a long time, um, even just with the density of the objects, which came from you know, having this thing in development for four and a half years, like there's a lot of time to make these little things, uh, gave it this feeling of believability that, you know, I think a lot of games don't have because there's so many other spaces that they need to work on where we have the luxury to focus a lot of our energies, you know, on, on these particular bedrooms. It was also, you know, that the density was part of like a conscious choice to try to make a space that was kind of in between a civilized human world and a more, you know, kind of wild naturalistic one. It's something that I think it's like a slider, you know, between the level of densities that, you know, like in, in terms of, for example, 
the clutter on the walls, uh, you can have a few photos on the wall and it feels like a regular family home. But you know, as you start adding more and more and more photos, it begins to look like the bark of a tree or you know the skin of a lizard or something that's just you know not quite human anymore. Uh, that also you know kind of suggests the passage of a long period of time and a lot of different people. And how did you decide how much of that stuff? And you're right, there is a lot of clutter in this house. The Finches are not great housekeepers. They have a lot <laughs> on their minds. But how did you decide how much of it you would let the player pick up and turn around and examine? Because there's a lot of environmental storytelling in this game. You know, you look at whatever, something that's pinned on the fridge and it gives you some insight into the family, but it's not explicit, like press right trigger to pick this thing up. And that Mm -hmm. can often feel like a chore in certain games where you're clicking on everything to see if you can pick it up or you feel obligated to pick it up. And in Edith Finch, you can look at everything and it's fun to snoop the way it would be, I guess, to snoop in anyone's house if it were (laughs) abandoned. But there are large white circles on the things that you can interact with and they aren't really that numerous. So you're looking around at everything, but it never feels like you are kind of checking off a box of, okay, I have to click on every object in this room. Yeah, yeah. I think it was something that we didn't ever consciously say, okay, this is, you know, the the number of interactive objects or this is like what this game is going to be like. It was something that we worked on, you know, kind of throughout the project and had some different ideas about. And yeah, I think the stories were the things that were the most difficult and time consuming and you know, uh, took the most focus from everybody. Uh, you know, there's just so many of them, obviously, and they're so different that you know we kind of worked on them in parallel. But at some point, you know, we realized that the stories were, you know, a little bit more of the heart of the experience, and we didn't want the house to, you know, require, I guess, as much. Like we talk about it as, internally as cognitive load. Uh, like how much can the player kind of absorb and what are they kind of in the mood for? And there is, you know, a version of this game very early on where as game designers, you know, we felt like each of these bedrooms should be a little puzzle where, you know, you'll look through and you'll have to like open the drawers and maybe there'll be like, you know, a secret thing that you have to turn to open, you know, and then you'll find the story that's in that bedroom. And, you know, each of them would just be like their own discrete puzzles that would encourage you to, you know, look at the room and, you know, kind of get a sense of who this person was. And instead of what we found was that we like, one, that was hard, uh, you know, making these rooms do all of the work that we wanted to do and also include, you know, an elaborate puzzle. Uh, you know, it didn't feel very natural to have that. Obviously, it was a very gamey kind of thing. Uh, but then it just didn't feel necessary. Like the rooms were interesting enough once we had, you know, a family that people were curious about, uh, you know, and enough details that describe these people that, you know, players before or after the stories, you know, can spend some time and, you know, experience the bedrooms in a way that I think is similar to what we were trying to do when there was a big puzzle element to it, but, you know, just do that in a very natural way where it feels like you are, you know, like you said, like snooping around, um, and that just felt more like what we wanted the game to be. There didn't seem like to be like a big advantage in challenging players in each of these bedrooms to find the story. Instead, we went the other way, and we added things like um, the shrines in 
the bedrooms that have the mm-hmm. portrait of the person. Uh, you know, so that was something that we realized midway through, or actually pretty late, that uh, you know, with so many family members, even just getting people to remember the names <laughs> and characters was really yeah. difficult because they got so absorbed in whatever story they were playing or had just played that everything else kind of gets flushed from their memory. So, you know, instead of trying to hide things, we were, you know, trying to surface them. And the shrines were a way for us to, it's almost like a green, you know, floating arrow in Grand Theft Auto that's pointing like, hey, here's the story. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, <laughs> you know, rather than having players be in the mindset of like, I have to, you know, discover a thing and there's a challenge, it's more like, okay, I see what that is, and now I can like bring my gaze up and feel like I have room to, you know, kind of digest everything else that's here. So, you know, it's kind of like in most games I feel like there's this drum beat, you know, that is getting faster and faster and is like, you know, increasing the excitement and the tension. But as a player, when you're in that state, you're not really receptive to much else. I mean, you're just in kind of a fight or flight mode. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, by kind of getting rid of of some of you know those sort of gamier elements and, and just like trusting players to be interested in the spaces, uh, you know, I think we we ended up with something that felt more appropriate for for the game we were making. This might be a too I play too many games, question, <laughs> but I really appreciated the way you approached informative text in the game, the way mm-hmm. it projects you know, along the back of a chair or perhaps like right above a handle that, that Edith has to engage with. And then the way it breaks away, like as she walks through it, how did you hit on that style? Uh, that was something that came out of the uh, desire to strip away a lot of conventional game signposting, you know, like yeah. the floating green arrow in, in Grand Theft Auto or the mini map or, you know, the, uh, you know, waypoint marker. And, uh, once they're gone, you, know, you realize how useful they are. You know how much yeah. work they do in a lot of games, uh, and it's, of course why they become so prevalent. Even the presence of enemies, you know, is a really helpful tool in the level right. designer tool. This is the way I go because these are the people that I have to kill. They're standing. Yeah, and, you know, it's uh, you know, you've got movement, you've got the sound of them shooting you, you've got you know, like lights maybe that they've got, uh, it's really, really helpful to, to signal the players where to go. And text was, you know, one of the things that we discovered could fill a lot of those functions for us um, in terms of, you know, subconsciously indicating to players where they might want to look and, and what might be, you know, most interesting in the room. And it was also, you know, something that dovetailed really nicely with, you know, the emphasis on story and in trying to remind players that you know they are playing uh, a story, and in What Remains of Edith Finch, you know you're playing Edith's version of you know her experiences, and then you know inside of that there are you know stories or sometimes stories within stories, uh, you know that give everything hopefully a um, you know kind of uncertain quality to it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that fascinates me about games in this general genre such as Gone Home or Firewatch or now Edith Finch, there's this sense of lurking dread and eeriness that (laughs) pervades Uh these games that can be somewhat misleading. And I don't want to give away too much of Edith Finch's story. It's obviously a somewhat macabre subject matter, but there's this question about 
you know, is there a, a literal physical monster lurking in this house that could be around every corner? And there's that sense that there can be and there's a vulnerability because you don't have any way to defend yourself. <laughs> and in those previous games and to a certain extent in Edith Finch, that is kind of a red herring. Like the, you know, the monster is not an external physical creature to the extent that it exists. It's a psychological thing inside your head. Perhaps it's, mm -hmm. you know, is this family actually cursed or does it believe it's cursed and it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy? So I'm curious about why you think that has been a hallmark of these games, that it's maybe it's just a product of the fact that you are alone exploring an environment and that can be creepy even in real life if you're home alone. But I wonder why that is, because the, the stories themselves are not always really all that scary, and yet the setup is scary in a in a way that maybe is just influenced by our previous experience of video games and, and what we expect from a game. Yeah, I mean I, I would I would say that uh you know I would agree with with your um your suggestion that the part of I think why we see so many uh, you know, kind of first-person narrative games that have this sense of, uh, you know, something ominous around the corner mm -hmm. is that it's very difficult to tell a story with one character. There's not a lot of stories where that works. Like, yeah. usually, like, I had a playwriting class in college that, uh, you know, the professor described story in a way that, you know, kind of made sense to me that I've used ever since, which is that story is the uh, revelation of character through conflict. Mm -hmm. And as a single character, there's not a lot to be in conflict with. You know, it's much easier when you have other people to react to. And that's something that's really challenging on this game, uh, you know, writing Edith's dialogue and figuring out her story was, there's a lot more hand-wringing and brainstorming, you know, sessions that went on Versus, you know, anytime we had characters who could speak to other characters, it just felt like, you know, you're, you're riding your bike downhill at that point. Mm -hmm. It's much easier. So I think part of the reason we see a lot of, you know, these kind of ominous tones is that it's something that you can set up very early on and do, you know, a little bit of service, you know, check in with now and again, but you don't need other characters to move that, that along as much mm -hmm. as you would a story about, you know, someone who had just had, say, like a traumatic breakup and, yeah. you know, what their feelings were about that person. Like, yeah, it's, it's a story that works well as a monologue, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I don't know if there are other stories that, you know, would work equally well that we just haven't tried yet. Uh, yeah. But, you know, thinking about you know, movies and other, you know, literature and things that like the single person story, it does kind of often, you know, pair up with this kind of ominous feel because you're also... You are alone, right? That is a key mm -hmm. part of being a single person and what kind of stories are interesting to be alone. You know, there are places where you feel like, wow, I really wish there was a group around, you know, somebody that could, uh, you know, push back the darkness and the unknown. Um, so I, I think maybe that's part of it as well, this feeling mm -hmm. of, of loneliness and, and what that's like. Yeah. And so lastly... This is lightly spoilery, so if you want to know <laughs> nothing about Edith Finch, you can skip ahead slightly. But it's not as spoilery as it could have been because this is something that you can recognize almost as soon as you start the game. I'm always curious in a first-person game about how the game represents the character's body, right? Sometimes you look down and you see nothing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are feet or some part of the body. In a shooter, obviously, you're seeing a, an arm clutching a weapon. 
And in Edith Finch, you look down and you do see the character's body. And there's a, a significant story reveal that just organically comes through that. Edith is pregnant. And that sounds like a big reveal, but it's something that you can see just by pointing the joystick down and looking at yourself. And I had this strange moment where at some point in the game, I just thought, oh, I'm pregnant. And I, there, <laughs> were, there had been no indication in the narrative to that point that that was the case. Later on, there is, and she acknowledges it. But it's a, a significant thing because this is a story about a young woman who is the last member of her family that is cursed. And so the fact that she is bringing a new life into the world is is significant. And yet you chose to just sort of put it out there for the character to see in their own time. And I'm curious about how you came to that decision. Uh, backwards. I think we <laughs> you know, initially had thought that that would be something that we would save until the mm -hmm. very end of the game. Right. And the question of how to end this game uh, was one that we had for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> uh, you know, we had different versions of it, like very different ideas. And, you know, I think we wanted initially to go out with a bang and to pack it full of, you know, all these kind of dramatic reveals. And what we found is that, you know, that took away a lot from people's experience. It's kind of getting back to this idea of cognitive load, that having more things to suddenly, you know, be aware of and think about and process meant that you couldn't spend as much energy, you know, kind of soaking in what you already were dealing with. Mm -hmm. So we ended up moving the pregnancy reveal, you know, a bit sooner and then a bit sooner than that. And, you know, just, I think as we moved forward through development, we just had more and more things in the game and more ideas and more characters and a richer world. And mm -hmm. there was no good point to tell people like, okay, <laughs> now, you know, you'll find this out. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause again, Edith's story is a little difficult since she's not really interacting with anyone. She's just experiencing these stories and, you know, commenting on it. it you know, there's no natural place for it. So, you know, then we, you know, kind of thought, well, what if we just let the player, you know, figure this out for themselves? And you know, I think that has worked out really well because it's something that players uh, aren't often positive about the first time. And mm -hmm. then as they go through, they, you know, sort of, a thing that they suspect, like it's almost like a mystery, you know, where they suspect and then they, you know, kind of are, are convinced about it later and it sticks in a little better. Yeah. Uh, one downside is that we have no control when or if players are going to notice this. Uh, right. Like, you know, Neil Druckmann, the, I don't remember what his title is exactly, creative director at Naughty Dog. Uh, you know, I saw that he was thinks, listed as a playtester in the credits. Yeah, we had a, a really great Sunday uh, right before we were supposed to be locking everything down where we had uh, Neil and, uh, and Brandon Chung from uh, Quadrilateral Cowboy each play in their own mm -hmm. living rooms and we uh, dragged uh, PlayStation, you know, around and uh, had them play and, and got some very last minute feedback from both of them. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, watching Neil play, he, I think was in the kitchen and he looked down at something and he was like, oh, I'm pregnant. And then it <laughs> yeah. was like nothing else, you know, he just like immediately got it and then was on his way where yeah. other people, you know, it's like much more of a, hmm, this is interesting. Maybe, I'm the, you know, and it takes a while. We did, mm -hmm. you know, also add a very specific line midway through where Edith, you know, right. somewhat offhandedly mentions, you know, that she's 22 weeks pregnant, uh, mm -hmm. just because it felt like in watching people in playtests, 
there were a significant number of people that didn't understand that that was the case. And then mm -hmm. a lot of things later, you know, don't really make sense unless you understand where she's coming from. But as a character, you know, it's not the kind of thing that she would probably be writing about because obviously if you're writing, you know, a journal to your son, like yeah. they know you're pregnant uh, <laughs> or that, you know, you've, you've had, had them. Um, mm -hmm. So trying to find like a good middle ground was, uh, was a little difficult, but yeah, yeah, I think I'm happy with where we landed. All right. Well, we really enjoyed the game. You can find out more about it on Twitter, Giant Sparrows at Giant Sparrow. You can go to GiantSparrow.com to watch some videos, read about it a bit. And we've been talking to the designer of What Remains of Edith Finch, Ian Dallas. Thank you, Ian. Thank Thanks, you. Ian. And I'm available Bye. to play test anytime. <laughs> All right. The next one will be a while. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll be back with Kotaku's Chris Person after a quick word from our sponsors. Dell Gaming creates machines to make every experience more intense and real. From powerful Dell Gaming PCs with Intel Core processors to the ultimate Alienware VR-ready experience, there's a PC designed to bring your best game at every level, because the best feature of a gaming machine is the power to make you forget it's there. Don't just play, game. Visit dell.com gaming to learn more. Again, that's dell.com gaming. And if you're ready to save money and play more games, you need to know about our next sponsor, Gamefly. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, you can pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. It's the leading video game rental service with over 9,000 titles to choose from. You can try your favorite games and movies before you buy, keep the games as long as you want. You'll never have to worry about late fees. You can cancel at any time. So go to Gamefly.com AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time and you can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com AO. So go sign up and start playing all your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. So we are joined now by Chris Person. He is a video editor at Kotaku, where he hosts the popular Highlight Reel recurring feature, which he's been doing since November 2014, almost, but not quite since the inception of the series, which is now approaching its 300th episode after airing twice weekly, Mondays and Thursdays. Hi, Chris. How are you? We're doing Hi. well. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's so weird to hear your voice uh, detached from Highlight Reel. Yeah, um, it's weird because I had to cultivate a voice because I had no yeah. VO experience, and so they're like, yeah. "Do Sports Center," and yeah, so it's weird for me too. Well, I was going to ask you what the model was. So it was that essentially that you were trying to take some tropes of maybe sports highlight shows and put your own spin on it. Yeah. I mean, the, the original goal as it was pitched, it was actually pitched to me. Um, but the the goal was like, you know, you'll go onto ESPN or any sort of sports thing and you'll just see like, here are the best things that happen in sports. And then somebody will say something relatively funny. And mm -hmm. that was the the model, but we're like, why don't we just do that with games? And yeah. it sort of evolved over time to be weirder. But uh, <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, if you want to know more about the history of the show, I'd be more than willing to talk about that. Well, sure. So, well, how did you come to it? Or I assume you had some video editing skills and you were around and you got pressed into service or was there more to it than that? Yeah, it was pitched from above and myself and Steve Marinkontz, who was my coworker at the time, were mm -hmm. sort of given a, a month to... To percolate it and to sort of try to make the show be what it was becoming. And I learned Cinema 4D, which is why the logo is the way it is. It looks very sports graphics-y, but kind of tacky. 
And I really <laughs> am fond of that. And um, we took a month to do it. And then, yeah, we, we went from there. And it's just gotten weirder and weirder as people have added stuff. Steve eventually left the company. And um, for a while, Gergo Vas, um, who also no longer works for Kodaku, was helping me out with it. But now it's basically just me. And originally it was three days a week, which I don't know how we did. <laughs> yeah. The episodes were shorter. Three years is like 300 years, especially in game streaming and game highlighting. What's How has your process evolved and you know how has... How have highlights evolved in that time? So so the show, it is called Highlight Reel. And, you know, I think as we got sort of a raw feed, I mean, basically what happens is it's it's a feed of what people think is interesting in games. And that can be highlights, but that can also just be games breaking. Or That's, that's my favorite stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. my favorite part. Yeah. And, and originally it was more just like, hey, here's a bunch of kill streaks, which is sort of like there's like a million YouTube channels like that where they people will put dubstep under battlefield clips of people just being <laughs> doing the, the craziest crap. And I, I love that so much because it is just the purest form of spectacle in gaming. You know what I mean? Like I like streaming plenty and it's a very specific pace and maybe I'm just a little too old to have been born into it, but I really like an edited thing. Like I like, just the espresso of streaming, just like mm -hmm. here's here's a bunch of weird crap that happened and that's funny and interesting or amazing. How do you find the stuff? I usually get like 300 emails um, <laughs> per episode. And in addition to that, I'll check Twitch or Reddit or just if somebody tweets something, which is actually harder to find. It's harder to find like like I was having this problem with uh, Breath of the Wild when it came out was that a lot of the best stuff were like Japanese players who would like tweet it out and it would be in impossible to index or search. You just have to like hope your friend like tweet it out or retweeted it and then you would see it and be like, OK, you know, I'm going to try to get permission from that person to use their clip. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if I see something that's good, I go on a lot of subreddits because Reddit's like the one of the few places that correctly aggregates those things despite a lot of structural problems with the platform itself and um i, I ask people and like 90 percent of the time they're cool with it most people just want to be credited and for you to link them correctly and to have their achievements acknowledged because that's really and that's really really important to me is that it is a collaborative show and that Everyone sources correctly because nobody sources well on the internet. And have you gotten jaded watching certain kinds of clips? Like is the headshot from halfway across the map not as impressive to you as it once was? Or do you still get the same thrill from the standard highlight of just player doing impressive thing? Um, It's made me a really weird person. And I'm already <laughs> a pretty strange human being as it is, but like... There's something I've talked a lot like there's this great tragedy I find where it's just like I have all this stuff that like is I don't know what to do with. You know what I mean? Like I have like 300 clips and like not a lot of them will go into the show or be like perfect, but they'll just be really, really specific ways of seeing a game break. And after mm -hmm. like a thousand of like after watching somebody in Dragon Age do a moonwalk like 50 times, you're mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, it's the, the Dragon Age moonwalking thing. <laughs> or the one where everyone hovers two feet above the ground but does a squat rock walk in The Witcher. You know, mm -hmm. like you become familiar with the wrinkles of these games and it makes it – it's familiar, but it, but it, you, re, you have to step back and be like, oh, this is really weird for this person to see this even though you're jaded. And yeah, sometimes you get a little 
cynical of like kill streaks, but that's because people in the comments are even more critical than me. They're like, I've seen, we've seen, <laughs> yeah, right? you know. They were no. all turned around, man. It's shotgun. <laughs> shotgun kills are weak. Like that's the reason I, I kind of am wary of CSGO clips is because CSGO people have the highest standard of what's impressive. And like I every once in a while I'll try to put one in there and they'll be like, no, man, you got to he has to have like done it through 1080 no scope. And then like he has to also be doing it on a Donkey Konga controller. I'm like, fair. Yeah. You know, you guys know what you're talking about. <laughs> and where do you come down on needing to verify that everything was done legitimately or there wasn't some sort of cheating going on? Can you tell that there always was? Are you OK with some kind of mod or, or cheating if it was particularly clever? Does it just have to be by the player's own skill only? I, I think it depends on what the context for the clip is and what the intent is from the clip. And I think you can infer that. It, basically, if, you're, if your intent is to make art with the game using cheating, mm -hmm. then and it's clear that you're just doing it really specifically for that purpose, then yeah, fine. I don't I, I, like. I don't care as long as you're you're explicit about that. But if you're pretending like you did something, yeah, and you cheated, then then screw off. And and a lot of people are very sensitive to like aimbots and stuff like that. And sometimes mm -hmm. I don't pick up on it, and they'll put me in my place in terms of like, no, you you got to be careful of that. And yeah, fair. <laughs> mm -hmm. But basically, I'm I'm okay with modding, but I'm not if if it's really really funny, but not cheating if it's competitive. That's not cool. It's been a fantastic year for glitches in games graphical glitches uh, assassin's creed had that great one where there was just no skin on the people which i've actually never seen video of in assassin's creed i saw screenshots of it um for <laughs> yes. sure but are there any uh, particular favorites that have made it into your your highlight reel well a, a lot of people talk about mass effect and like there was a lot of really good mass effect glitches but i don't know that game is kind of about as it breaks with the same frequency as like the witcher 3 did when it came out and I think the difference is like, oh, is it, you know, a fun game? There was one where the person, someone's going up to somebody and they just keep leaning out over and over and over. And then they sort of twist upside down. But the speech is still happening while that happens. Um, <laughs> it's really weird to sort of like explain with no visual detail, like what my favorite glitches are. But it, <laughs> if there's a layer of irony in addition to the glitch, like, you know, I don't like a game that's just broken. I like a game that's broken. And then there's another layer to it. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? Because otherwise you're just making fun of people for their game being broken. And that can be funny if it's a really funny glitch. But yeah. Do you have any time restrictions? Like if someone submits a clip from a very old game, will you not include it? Are you looking for games that are being played that are popular now or does it not matter? I usually try to get them to be timely. I hope the clip is timely. Like I hope they uploaded it relatively mm -hmm. recently right sometimes i'll reach out for a clip and it's like oh here yeah yeah i recorded it and then it's like a clip that was from three years ago and i'm like oh damn yeah no actually you know if you want to submit an old game go to town i think newer games will have better traction just because people are playing them but yeah no if you're doing an there, there's no limit it, it, i think the bigger thing is is it pithy you know does it get to the point really quickly and sometimes like if somebody sends me like a video that's like eight minutes long and they're not like, oh, at one thirty something happens, mm -hmm. then I'm going to be like, I, you know, I don't know what to do with that. But, you know, cool. <laughs> you know, it's it's nice. But like usually I try to they should be just self-evident and short and something you're passionate about. I've noticed with um, obviously just because it's a very popular game and it's uh, semi new, but there are a lot of Overwatch 
play of the game highlights in highlight reel. Do you sense that developers are starting to react to highlight culture, stream culture in a way that could grab attention? Like it seems like this would be great free advertising if if you could figure out a way that interesting moments in a game could be easily digestible and repackaged somewhere else. I mean, absolutely. And we kind of saw it. I mean, that's the great tragedy of like the Switch is that I really wanted Zelda clips. Like right. I really that's, like there was yeah. so mm-hmm. much stuff and there were not a lot of Zelda clips because it didn't have built in cap. Like you can take screenshots. I think they're going to patch it in soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be mistaken. But yeah, the, the only people who really had the means to do that were people who ha- also had the means to have a capture set up. And I think that one of the smartest, although complicated things that happened in the last generational cycle was just the share button. The share button mm-hmm. and people being able to be like, oh, I can record this really weird thing that's happening. And it's democratized how people have control over their media in a way that I think is really important because it's just otherwise it's kind of a class thing. Like you you, you need the resources or a, the job to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, no, it, it's really smart to do it. It can backfire on you completely. Like, you know, if your game breaks a million ways, people are there, but you just got to double down and really – Make sure your game doesn't break in really stupid ways and then make a game that's exciting to watch. What are some of the games in the pantheon of highlight reel material going back during the years that you've done this? Either right now, what's the most fertile source of material Jason mentioned Overwatch or just over the years, what do you think the games that have appeared the most in the series have been and i guess it makes sense probably that the most popular games would appear more often just because more people are playing them and generating clips but maybe there are some games that are kind of punching above their weight also in terms of the number of clips or highlights they generate per player whether it's highlights in an impressive way or just they're broken in funny ways i mean all time gta probably but we have Mm -hmm. that community kind of died down when another you know a million open world games that were like that kind of came out it was still a great game still people doing that but it's sort of collapsed into its own community but um right now i mean player unknown's battlegrounds is pretty huge on twitch and like it is a very watchable game i think a lot of people who don't play it i wish i had more time to give them context for it because it is once you get it there's not a lot to get but once you do get it it's really funny overwatch speaking of overwatch um a lot of people don't like overwatch it turns out and which is why i'm sort of limiting very, very consciously limiting the number of Overwatch clips because I was just tired of people being like, you only do Overwatch, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, fair. <laughs> you know, if you don't like Overwatch, I can understand how this is indecipherable to you. And so I, I, I very consciously try to listen to what people also don't like uh, while not being beholden to it. I mean, some of the battle sims are really ripe for it. Totally accurate battle sim. I've not gotten any submissions for, but, you know, when that gets out of, I believe, Alpha and Epic Battle Simulator, which did really well recently, but is, mm-hmm. you know, still... That one's a little rougher. I, I think totally accurate battle sim will have legs once it really lifts off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything that involves like people online, open world games are always really, really funny. Any Ubisoft game will break in a million ways. And I feel like I'm part of their QA department now. <laughs> yeah, that's a, there's a million. Uh, Witcher, Witcher actually br- has broken the most number of ways. Uh, yeah. <laughs> people forget because Witcher, the difference is because is the difference between Mass Effect and The Witcher 3, even though The Witcher 3 breaks more ways, is that Witcher 3 is an amazing game and Mass Effect Andromeda is fine, but it, it's not The Witcher. Also, when those kind of weirdly male gazy and intense sex scenes break, that's yeah. just comedy in and of itself. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, because you're, you're, you're seeing someone being like, yeah, does this make you horny? And then their, like, legs are on top of their head. <laughs> <laughs> it rules. It's, it's funny. It's, but it's such a weird kind of comedy. Like, it's not – and that has informed how – it's like, yeah, it's like Cronenberg made a, made a funny movie. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's really, really hard to, to, to map it to anything else. Yeah. And so what would you say the most fertile genres are? Because there are popular games that, as you're sort of saying here, are tough to decipher if you don't have much experience with them. Like Jason and I were at Madison Square Garden for a League of Legends tournament last year, and we are familiar with the game, but we haven't really played it. And so, you know, like a roar would go up in the crowd when something would happen and we would be turning to each other like, do you know what just happened? (laughs) Do you know why that was good? And we weren't always totally sure. You you need some level of expertise, whereas I guess with a first-person shooter, someone gets shot in the head from far away. It's obvious why that was impressive. Yeah, and, and that is a limitation of the show is that I don't have time to explain really, really high – impact games to people like really or not high impact but like high games that are really hard to read if you haven't put a lot of time into them mm-hmm. league of legends is a great example i get a, occasionally i'll get a league of legends clip or even better a replay file which i guess uh-huh. is them saying like hey um just load up league of legends play this <laughs> replay file screen cap it and then it's really good right and but no yeah it is limiting. I try when something's really, really impressive and you do need to know a couple of things. I really try to contextualize it, but without stepping on the clip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Open world games like Assassin's Creed games are really good because, you know, it's it's readable. And I've had a lot of people say, like, I watch your show and it helps me keep up with games or I don't play games, but I watch your show or I don't get really into specific games. But, you know, people like a show that's pretty widely readable mm-hmm. and that's both the flaw and the benefit of the show. And are you reluctant to include any sort of pranking or trolling or griefing, that kind of thing, which can be funny, but perhaps mean-spirited at times? Do you have to struggle with that at all? I mean, if it's really, really funny, I'll include it. Like if mm-hmm. if, if it's, yeah, I, try, I mean, it depends because there's that whole culture of YouTube people where it's like, epic prank, I set a firecracker right. under a cop or, you know, like... Yeah. Just the really gross, mean spirited, awful ones, you know, like epic prank. I made a child cry. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in that. If the spirit of the troll reveals that the person is themselves kind of a mean spirited person, then sure. But for the most part, I try to avoid pranks. Yeah. All right. Well, you can find Chris on Twitter at Papa Pishu. You can also find him hosting Highlight Reel at Kotaku twice a week. You can find the videos on Kotaku's YouTube channel. And Chris, thanks for churning out the videos and coming on to talk to us about it. Thank you so much, man. Thanks. Okay, so let's take a quick question from Twitter to end this episode. This one's from David. He says, with Zelda behind us, what are your most anticipated games of 2017? And... I'm trying not to give the obvious answers. I'm trying not to say new Battlefront, new Red Dead, new Mario, new Crackdown. Of course, I'm excited about those things as anyone else. But you have any titles you're particularly looking forward to? I am looking forward to a game called Church in the Darkness, which is basically like a they're calling it a stealth puzzle game, which is set basically in Jonestown, Mm. I guess, a South American colony of cultists. And you basically have to sneak in and rescue your nephew. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there are a couple of games coming out next month. Rhyme, which is a very Last Guardian slash Zelda looking game, and then Star Trek Bridge Crew, which oh, might be my yes. might be my most anticipated game if I could ever play it. We have it. to play this, Ben. Ben, <laughs> we have to play this. The odds. I want you to be looking over at me saying, put up the deflector shields. <laughs> yeah. I played a PC game called Artemis Spaceship Bridge Simulator, where each person has a, a station on a bridge and you play it on your own laptop and you can play with several people and it was a ton of fun but this is star trek branded so potentially even more exciting but the, the odds that i'll ever find for people with vr whom i know to play in the optimal way are pretty low but i'm holding out hope and then later in the year there's tacoma the new game from the gone home people that set on a space station sea of thieves the rare open world multiplayer pirate game and Earth Defense Force 5. I love Earth Defense Force, and this is the first installment that's built from the ground up for this current generation of consoles. So that's probably my non-obvious list. Remember to keep your questions coming to Achievement Pod on Twitter. So you just went west, but you are coming back east. We're going to be at the Tribeca Games Festival in New York this weekend. If you're around, say hello. If not, we'll still be bringing you content from our time there next week, and we will talk to you then. Thanks again to Gamefly for sponsoring today's episode. Gamefly is the best way to buy or rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, you can pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. So go to Gamefly.com AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time, and you can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com AO. So go sign up and start playing all your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. And while you're at it, bring your best game at every level, from powerful Dell gaming PCs with Intel Core processors to the ultimate Alienware VR-ready experience. Don't just play, game. Visit dell.com slash gaming. That's dell.com slash gaming. 